Hello and welcome back to Bloody Bites. It's Jamie here. And this is where I throw chunks of history for you to catch in midair. A blind man, a headset, a recording device. What could possibly go wrong? Well, I guess we're about to find out in the next 10 to 20 minutes. But stay with me, because today's subject is a Nazi murder mystery, or a Nazi whodunit, Joachim Piper. And to start with, I want to take you back to July 1976, to a small wood cabin above the Seine River near a French village called Trave in southeastern France. Because that small cabin was ablaze. It was the night of Bastille Day, July the 14th, and it had been firebombed. When the police were raking through the wreckage in the early hours of the following morning, they found a body that had shrunk to about a metre long, and they knew exactly who it was. It belonged to Joachim Piper. There were spent pistol cartridges around, uh, there was a melted hunting rifle. And that man, Joachim Piper, was a convicted Nazi war criminal and one of the most notorious SS officers of the Second World War. You may well ask why he had moved to that area of France. In fact, he had actually visited there in 1940 with Heinrich Himmler uh, because both of them were intrigued by the possibility of creating a sort of SS state, an enclave, uh, within the Third Reich. And that was one of the areas they were looking at. But that man had a record. And he was there, his body was there, because French teenagers had approached with Molotov cocktails a few weeks before. uh, Piper had gone into a hardware store near his village in the local town, and had ordered wire for his kennel. And he had been recognised by a communist. And the local communists had started putting out flyers. The communist newspaper, Humanité, had put articles in about him. Uh, and there had been rumours about him living in the area. In fact, you know, his next-door neighbour had been an SS colonel, a guy called Kettlehoot, Erwin Kettlehoot, who had actually lent him the rifle to defend himself once these rumours started flying that his life was at risk. And Joachim Piper had actually sent his wife back shortly before his murder uh, to Germany because he knew something was coming. And so it proved... So why was he killed? Well, I guess you have to look at his history. He was a prize turd, let's be honest. Uh, And he never apologised for what he had done. Uh, He had stood trial after the war, but very few Nazi war criminals were ever hanged uh, for their crimes. And he had got away with it, as so many did. Uh, His career was remarkable. He had been in the Hitler Youth. He became... Heinrich Himmler's adjutant. He ended up in the Leibstandarte Adolf Hitler, the top SS panzer division, and had led his own regiment, the first panzer regiment, also known as Kampfgruppe Piper, uh, Battle Group Piper. And that was important because it gave him a leading role in so many actions through the Second World War on the Eastern Front, in Italy, and in Western Europe as well. 
And that's why he played a leading role in the Battle of the Bulge, in the Ardennes Offensive of 1944 that Hitler launched. He was a remarkable figure. He was known for ruthlessness, brutality, cruelty, and pure aggression in his military behavior. Uh, he won the Knight's Cross with Oak Leaf Cluster of the Iron Cross, very highly decorated and widely admired both by his men and by Heinrich Himmler. So you can see why he got into a pole position for what was going to come. And in 1944, his really, the, 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 the sort of apogee of his career um, came to the fore because Hitler decided to launch his Ardennes Offensive. The Allied advance had stalled. Uh, the Allies were incredibly complacent about German military capability. They had landed in Normandy, they were pushing on. Uh, a lot of their generals had originally believed they would be in Berlin by Christmas. And this is what General Bradley had, had told the troops, for example, just after the Normandy invasion uh, in 1944. And this had stalled. They had got to a stage, they had lost a lot of airborne manpower, the Brits certainly had, with Operation Market Garden in September 1944, which was an absolute catastrophe. And Hitler thought, now is the moment to strike back. You know, the Allies think we're a corpse, but the corpse is going to rise again. And what the Allies are going to see is a German army reborn, re-equipped, that can strike at their heart, that can reach Antwerp, that can stop the resupply of the Allied invasion forces and that would divide the Allies and force the Allies to compromise, to come to a negotiated agreement with Hitler, with the Third Reich, that would allow Hitler to turn on his true enemies, the Soviets, who were encroaching on the East, who were coming on. So this is what Hitler decided. He always talked about Frederick the Great, how Frederick the Great had turned things around and he could do the same. And it's no accident that when Hitler eventually killed himself, he did so under the portrait of Frederick the Great. This was the leader he admired. So he re-equipped his men, his armies in secret, pulled them back. They gave a code name for the operation for the Arden offensive that was going to be launched in December 1944 and it was going to be called Watch on the Rhine so that the Allies if they picked anything up would simply think it was a defensive gesture that he was consolidating his forces and that it was really to counter the Allied advance but what Hitler was doing was withdrawing men to re-equip his panzer regiments with the Panther, with the Tiger II tank. And there were going to be three massive thrusts from the Ardennes. And again, I talk about the complacency of the Allies. Well, they might have learned something from the Germans fighting back during the airborne uh, landings of Operation Market Garden, the disaster of the Arnhem raid. Uh, and 
you know, Hitler was taking advantage not only of the signal silence that was imposed on his armies, uh, the but also the terrible weather, that terrible December weather uh, over that area. So there was no air cover. The Allies couldn't use their aerial supremacy to strike at the German army. And this offensive that became known as the Battle of the Bulge was the fiercest, greatest battle the Americans fought in Europe during the Second World War. Uh, the 600,000 American troops were involved. 20,000 Americans lost their lives. Uh, 40,000 were wounded. 20,000 were taken prisoner. And Hitler, it was the last gamble, the last throw of the dice. Uh, he sent in initially 410,000 men, 1,400 latest tanks, and this was his big move, his big gamble. So on December the 16th, he launched uh, his operation, and it involved essentially uh, General von Manteuffel, uh, Zepp Dietrich, and the 6th Panzer Army uh, in the north, and of course, our friend Joachim Piper. And Kampfgruppe Piper had a key role to play. Uh, all of these forces were essentially there to cross the Meuse, to head for Antwerp, to divide the British and the Americans and chew them up on the way. But there were key weaknesses. I mean, there was a lot of chance uh, here. And one of the problems was that the Tiger II tank only had a range of about 100 miles. So they needed to get supplies of fuel. Piper was lucky because he grabbed 50,000 gallons of fuel from the 99th Division. Um, Piper eventually ran out of fuel. Von Manteuffel uh, was counterattacked, crossing the Meuse. Uh, and th there were some amazing uh, defenses put up. You know, all the way, the Americans were blowing bridges and putting up a resistance at Bastogne, the 101st Airborne, backed by field artillery, held out and were eventually relieved by Patton's forces. In fact, the 101st were a bit annoyed by this because they thought they could hold out uh, indefinitely. They put up an incredible defense. So that slowed and slaughtered the Germans there. You saw the incredible defence of Elsenborn Ridge by elements of the 99th Division that included Cooks and Clarks, and they held out and hurled back the Germans there. The Germans lost 4,000 men for just over 400 uh, American casualties, American dead on that ridge. It was, it was the greatest bombardment, artillery bombardment, the Americans had ever suffered uh, during the Second World War. There was another incredible uh, defense put up by the intelligence and recce platoon, the I and R platoon of the 394th uh, uh, Regiment, Infantry Regiment of the 99th Division of the US Army. 18 men held out against the 9th Falschirmjäger, the paratroops, and killed scores of them. And that held up Piper's advance. So he was extremely annoyed. He actually met the captives, and they were very lucky not to be killed uh, by Piper and his SS. Uh, Piper had a reputation. He had already slaughtered uh, a village uh, in Italy uh, earlier the year before, 
uh, at a place called Bovis and uh, killed 24 men and a woman, razed the houses to the ground. So he had a reputation. In fact, the Leibstandarte uh, division had a terrible reputation. Uh, don't forget, they had killed 80, some 80 to 90 British soldiers, um, just massacred the prisoners uh, it, just outside Dunkirk when the British were evacuating. Uh, they had killed them with grenades and machine gun fire. And history was going to repeat itself during the Battle of the Bulge because Joachim Piper, having been held up, pushed on. He was held up again as bridges were blown at villages like Trois-Ponts and elsewhere. So you couldn't get over the initial river, let alone reach the Meuse. And he had to give up in the end. But on the way, uh, he passed... Um, a group of American soldiers. Uh, their trucks had been cornered, some had been blown up, and the captives, some 150 of them, were taken into a field. Um, Piper had moved on, but one of his majors uh, decided uh, to machine gun the Americans and managed to kill some 84 of them. It was a terrible episode. The Americans stood in lines eight rows deep. Uh, first of all, an uh, SS officer had shot three American soldiers with his pistol. The American officers had told their men to stay steady, not to run, because that would have given the Germans the excuse to kill them. So they stood and fell where they were shot. Uh, the panzers rolled on, uh, the next echelon SS, SS troops came by and they finished the job. They were going around uh, smashing skulls with rifle butts, uh, shouting, does anyone need medical assistance, does anyone need help? And if people responded, they were then killed. Uh, so that was a terrible episode. As I said, 84 uh, were killed and many more wounded. Uh, some got back to the American lines. So that started to filter through. And uh, you know, some American generals thought this was actually an advantage because it reminded the GIs why they should hate the Germans as they fought them. Uh, Piper was blunted at that point. So the Battle of the Bulge failed. Uh, it was a catastrophe, and it really burnt out the German war effort. It was the end of their ability to fight, and Piper played his part in that. He was a fanatical Nazi, like Sepp Dietrich. And after the war, in 1946, he ended up uh, before a military tribunal and a war crimes tribunal. There were 70 of them in that batch. Uh, he was number 42. Uh, that was the number around his neck. Zepp Dietrich was there too. He was number 11. And out of the 70 uh, defendants, um, 43 were sentenced to death. And Joachim Piper was one of them. They had to wear jackets, red jackets, to show they were condemned men. Zepp Dietrich, extraordinarily, uh, was given life imprisonment. And uh, Joachim Piper asked to be shot rather than hanged because he was an officer. But this was post-war. The instinct, the effort to find retribution, to punish those who had committed terrible war crimes, faded. Um, the Cold War had started. So 
all those people who have been condemned to death were essentially uh, let off. And, you know, that, that was uh, what happened to so many of them. Um, Denazification uh, was very random. Uh, only a few hundred Nazis were actually hanged in spite of their crimes. And so many of them went on to other things, went to, off to freelance, went off to work as Klaus Barbie did, the butcher of Lyon, uh, worked in Bolivia as a torturer and interrogator with his fiancés of death, as they were called, Otto Skorzeny, the Nazi commando, went to work for President Nasser of Egypt, uh, training his intelligence organizations and tried to exterminate the state of Israel. So uh, they all found new roles. Uh, Piper actually ended up through the HAIG, the Waffen-SS support organization of old comrades, uh, got a job with Porsche in Stuttgart. Um, as Porsche had actually manufactured the Panther tank. So he, he was back on his old uh, stomping ground, I suspect. And he became a publicity manager. He was going to rise further, but the unions found out about it. The Italians found out about it. And given that his uh, reputation for slaughtering Italian peasants and villagers uh, preceded him, he wasn't going to get further with Porsche. And Porsche sales in America started to fall because of the publicity, the bad publicity that was generated. So Piper left Porsche. And that is why he ended up living down in southeast France in the late 60s. He moved there in 1969. Um, he had only spent 10 years in prison, was released in 1956 um, from his so-called life sentence and you know, went to quiet retirement um, with a few other SS men down in southeastern France. So he was murdered and you know people had closed in, the communists had discovered about him. He was one of the few who was actually hunted down in the end uh, and killed. And France and Germany didn't want to have any bad feelings. They didn't want the uh, political furore. So it, it was essentially hushed up. And after six months of inquiry and interrogating sort of local communists and local villagers, the, the case was quietly closed. But there was so much of this sort of uh, strange uh, post-war environment in which SS officers found new roles. The CIA had set up the Galen Organization and this was a front organization to really fight uh, the East Germans and the KGB in the, in the rubble of Berlin, post-war Berlin. And you know, it was known that so many Gestapo men, including the head of Gestapo Vice, worked for them. Uh, Piper, I'm sure, um, gave his tuppence worth of help too. Um, so many of these people were helped by Western intelligence and used by Western intelligence uh, under the basis that your enemy's enemy is your friend. And that's how things had, had moved on. But in this patchwork environment of retribution and uh, suspicion and people you know, trying to uh, get justice, some people you know, fell victim to what was going on. And so 
that was the death of Joachim Piper. The murderers were never found. But when we get to the postscript, you know, there's another strange post-war murder, and that involves someone called Jack Drummond. Sir Jack Drummond, he was a noted nutritionist and biochemist. He had also been chief scientific advisor to the British Ministry of Food during the Second World War. And like Joachim Piper, although he obviously wasn't a war criminal, he was killed in a rather strange incident in 1952, much earlier than Joachim Piper. Uh, he had been on holiday with his wife and daughter, camping holiday in the Côte d'Azur, and he was shot dead, as was his wife. And their daughter had made a run for it and was uh, killed with a rifle butt to blow to her head. And a local peasant was arrested, and it became known as the Dominici Affair. And like Joachim Piper, it was never solved, uh, because although this man was charged and found guilty, Gaston Dominici, a local peasant, he was released, not pardoned, by Charles de Gaulle in about 1960. And sort of everyone has wondered why that murder occurred. Some have claimed that Jack Drummond was involved in Operation Paperclip uh, to get German scientists out of uh, post-war Germany, post-war Europe, uh, you know, in the sort of 1940s and early 1950s, uh, and that the Soviets had been annoyed by this and sent a hit squad. I, I doubt that story very much. There's a more plausible story that he was actually killed by French intelligence because he'd been working for MI6 and was trying to get... Uh, information on Fr France's organophosphate uh, industry that was growing at that stage. But there's a post postscript because my father was also uh, a leading biochemist and nutritionist, uh, had set up a company called Allied Laboratories and had actually sued Sir Jack Drummond, who was knighted for his role in the war, uh, because Jack Drummond and the Ministry of Food and the British government had pinched my father's blueprint, his patent, for freeze-drying food, eggs, milk, that sort of thing, uh, in the wartime period. And my father had won the case, had won damages uh, from those people. And Sir Jack Drummond was the leading person who had, my father claimed, had pinched that information. So I can't say that my father would have shed a tear for Jack Drummond, but it's a classic example of the sort of ragged, dirty, messy ending to the war and what was going on in the post-war years. There was a lot of skullduggery, a lot of espionage, uh, and a lot of vendettas and blood feuds going on. And one can say that in a way, uh, Jack Drummond and Joachim Piper, in their own way, were casualties of that post-war environment. So there you have it, today's bloody bite. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you didn't, well, you have to be grateful that you don't have to watch me doing improvised dance on TikTok. Goodbye. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. 
His name is James Jackson. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck. Thank you.